Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth. So NetHealth has created the Redoc Patient Portal to help you maintain strong relationships with your patients. It provides a secure line of communication for video conferencing for telehealth, secure messaging, sharing documents and photos, and your patients have 24-7 secure on-demand access to their therapy health information without phone calls and voice messages. So if you want to learn more about this HIPAA-compliant video connection, contact NetHealth at Redoc, that's R-E-D-O-C, at NetHealth.com. All right, on to today's episode. So we're in the month of October, which is crazy, but we all know the month of October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So we're kicking off this month, our first episode of the month, with Lee Hurst. So Lee is a breast cancer survivor and the founder of the Feel Your Boobies Foundation, which she started to educate young women under 40 by reminding them to feel their boobies, a call to action that can save their life. Feel Your Boobies Foundation is one of the largest followed breast cancer awareness foundations on Facebook and has inspired women all over the world to feel for lumps starting before they are formally screened for breast cancer, which, for those of you who don't know, starts at around age 40, unless you have family history. And most importantly, it has directly resulted in countless women finding lumps early and giving them a better shot at living a full, meaningful life after their diagnosis. The Feel Your Boobies Foundation has been featured in the New York Times, New York Daily News, and other national publications. At one point, Feel Your Boobies was the largest cause on Facebook with more than 1 million supporters. Hearst is also the author of a new book, Say Something Big, Feel Your Boobies, Find Your Voice, stories about little lumps inspiring big change, which is out this month. Uh, And we talk about it in the episode. So beyond her work with Feel Your Boobies, Lee regularly speaks to audiences large and small, sharing her own personal journey and inspiring others to say something big amidst, amidst life's hurdles and hardships. She resides in Pennsylvania with her family, and Feel Your Boobies uses innovation around media to reach women across the world with their important message. If you want to find out more, you can visit leahurst.com or feelyourboobies.com or connect with Leah on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And we have all of those links in the show notes over at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So in this episode, we talk about Lee's experience advocating for her own breast cancer diagnosis, which she got young, and we talk about that, the story behind the Feel Your Boobies Foundation, kind of its origin story, why women need to prioritize self-care, and the voices of breast cancer survivors in the book Say Something Big. So thank you, thank you to Lee for... Uh, inspiring all of us and for sharing her story, which, you know, is not easy for a lot of people. So I really thank Lee for that. And everyone enjoyed today's episode. Hi, Lee. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. 
Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. And now we're in the month of October. And for those of people who don't know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And in the past, I've had shows about breast cancer during the month of October. But this is the first time I am speaking to a breast cancer survivor. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story because I know it's going to be so helpful for other women and men listening to this podcast. So before we kind of get into everything, I'm going to just throw it over to you so that you can just kind of tell your story. Um, how old you were when you were diagnosed? How did you find out? So I'll send it over to you. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, so I, I was officially diagnosed when I was 33, um, but I had felt the lumper sometime leading up to the actual diagnosis. So I think I was probably around 30 or 31 when I started to notice the lump. Um, and I was living in New York City at the time, and I was a marathon runner. Um, so really health conscious, certainly educated about my health, felt very kind of plugged into that kind of thing. Um, and for a little while, I didn't really think much about it. Um, I just thought it was, you know, something not, no big deal. Um, I really small breasts. So I felt like when I'd go to the doctors, I'd let them sort of do their exam of my breast and they would never notice it until I would point it out. So I would literally take their hand, put it on my boob and say, this kind of feels a little different to me. I don't know if you noticed it or not. It's just like a ridge on the outer side of my left breast. And, um, and then they would feel it and then they would say, uh, really think that's anything to worry about. Um, I had no family history, so I wasn't exceptionally worried about it. Although, as I know now, that's not necessarily a primary risk factor. It is, but most women diagnosed don't have a family history. So, um, so I was pacified about that for a while. You know, that kind of went on for maybe a year or two. Um, I eventually uh, decided to sort of simplify my life, and I moved out of New York City. I was in a really kind of super corporate job, traveled a lot for my work on a weekly basis. And I was just trying to find ways to sort of, you know, step out of that. And so I moved back to central PA, which is where I live now. <clears throat> kind of got set up, bought a house, um, was back near my family. And it came time for my annual exam. And I went again to the doctors. And uh, again, it wasn't noticed, but I mentioned it. It was the first time someone said, well, you should probably just get a mammogram. It can't hurt to sort of just see if it's something or not. So that's how it started. <clears throat> Ended up having the mammogram, showed some areas of concern, took me right in, did an ultrasound, and eventually a biopsy a couple weeks later, and it did turn out to be cancer. So that was uh, 2004. Um, and, you know, needless to say, I was very concerned because I knew I'd had the lump for quite some time, so I wasn't sure what to expect. But it did turn out to be stage one, so early stage breast cancer. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how it started. Um, with you know, finding out that I had a lump and uh, went through treatment. I decided to have a lumpectomy. The lump was small, stage one, um, had no lymph node involvement, so that was good. And I did do chemotherapy because I was young, so they suggested that because of being premenopausal and being so young at the time it was done preventatively. Um, so I did chemotherapy, then I did uh, seven weeks of daily radiation treatment at, to the lump site. And, um, and then I took five years of a pill called tamoxifen, which mm -hmm. is estrogen reducing medicine. <clears throat> At the time they were still pre prescribing it for five years. I believe now the regimen is 10 years, but, um, so the actual treatment itself was about six months start to finish. And then it was the five years of, um, the tamoxifen following that. And at the age of 33, you must've been 
kind of shocked, right? Because it's not something that um, that we hear a lot of, you know, like even to get a mammogram, they don't suggest getting a mammogram until you're 40. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, it was like, you know, looking back on it, I remember thinking, gosh, I never talked about breast cancer, never talked about it. I didn't know anybody who had had it. Um, not even really sure I knew anybody who, mother that had had it. Um, so I was really taken aback by that when I was diagnosed and I was single at the time, um, really hadn't thought about having a family quite yet. You know, I was living in the city. It was very common to still be kind of doing your thing. And so there were other issues that came up other than, of course, the life or death issue with breast cancer. There were the other uh, possibilities of losing your fertility through chemo. Um, certainly, that's a possibility. Um, certain decisions that you might be faced with can also, you know, if you decide to remove any of your uh, female organs, ovaries, whatever, to minimize your risk. Of course, those are big decisions when you haven't started a family yet. And I, again, I wasn't really sure I was going to, but I didn't want that choice to be taken away from me. I didn't want it to be something that I couldn't do at a later date. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was shocking. And, you know, out of that, I really started to like, think about why didn't I talk about this? Why didn't I think about this? Um, and so that's kind of how the feel your boobies, um, idea came about is that I just made some t-shirts for friends. Cause I would joke around during my treatment, I was actually still running and I didn't get sick. So I was really happy about that. Um, and I just made shirts that said, feel your boobies for fun. I'd always wanted to make t-shirts. I was kind of crafty, um, kind of thing, you know, hobbies on the side. And so my friend and I mocked up a t-shirt and I got like a hundred made, put a website up. My background's in technology-based learning. So I was kind of techie and um, just sent it around to my friends that had lived in the cities where I had moved after grad school. And I started selling shirts to people I didn't know very quickly. It just kind of went mm -hmm. by. I was getting checks in the mail from people. I had no idea who they were. And so, you know, that whole um, idea of, of using a message like feel your boobies, which is lighthearted, but very pointed in terms of what it's trying to get you to do, um, made me think about, you know, it, is this really creating behavior change? Is this creating a meaningful dialogue among a, a population of women like me that never really talked about it before? If they did, mm -hmm. it was a very serious tone and it was about their mother or it was in the context of a doctor's office. And so, um, so that accidental t-shirt that was just a hobby sort of evolved in time um, into something that took over my life, quite honestly, and quickly I had to figure out what I was doing with it. So that's how the foundation itself came to be. Yeah, it's amazing the things that can the things that happen to you that can just do a 180 and change your life. Right? So you could have had this diagnosis and then just went on and got a job and just went on your way. Right? But instead you were like, "Wait a second. Like I'm young. I never talked about this. There's got to be other people out there just like me. So how can I reach them?" Right. Right. Yeah, sort of backfitting it, right? Because I didn't do, I didn't create the T-shirt with that in mind, but I watched it happen, and that started to make sense to me um, with my background in behavior theory and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I kind of ran with it, and you know, we were able to support ourselves for quite some time just through T-shirt sales. So fortuitously, unlike other nonprofits that, you know, had to submit for grants and you know, really the funding side of it is the tricky part. Mm -hmm. um, we were fortunate in those early days that the, the, the t-shirt sales themselves allowed us to do a lot of creative things through social media before that was a standard way of spreading our message. Um, 
And so uh, we really tried to leverage the idea of media and the peer-to-peer -peer sharing because what I saw when somebody would wear the t-shirts like a happy hour or um, a cookout was I, I was watching like a 20-something talk to another 20-something or a guy even who might say, your shirt says, feel your boobies. Can I feel your boobies? <laughs> and then they would say, oh, it's not about that. It's about breast cancer. You got to feel your boobs to see if you find a lump. And to me, that was a productive conversation. It was somebody articulating something very simple, but in a playful and a more friendly and lighthearted way than trying to impart stats or other types of things that I think a lot of campaigns do. Or certainly they have the aesthetic and the sensibility that feels like it's for an older woman. Mm -hmm. So you may relate to it because you're trying to just be proactive and educate yourself about health, but the messaging itself is not really created for you. It's not created for the younger population, the, the style of the images, the style of the graphics, and even the use of the channel that you use to spread it, right? So a t-shirt's just one way you right. can do that, but you can do that in many other ways. You know, we flew aerial banners up and down the Jersey Shore in the summertime on all the very populated beaches, and I'm thinking uh -huh. of these young women that are like dragging themselves out to the beach after going out Friday night, and they see a, you know, a aerial banner and they say, oh my God, that says feel your boobies. And I'm like, that's wonderful. That's a great way to kind of intersect with them where they are in a way that they can relate to. And, and you know, it's created testimonials from women that say that's why they, they found their lump. So very proud of the campaign. And eventually I went on and left my corporate career and ran the foundation um, full time. So it mm -hmm. really did do that 180 for me that you mentioned about changing your life. It, it was definitely that for me. Yeah, so we can definitely see how your life has changed after diagnosis, but what what are the big lessons that you learned? Um, well, you know, I, I definitely learned, I'm type A, very much of an ambitious overachiever, and you know. Well, I mean, you were in New York City in a corporate <laughs> job. We got, we get it. We, you that know, came across. <laughs> right, and so you kind of like play these scripts out in your head, like, I really should slow down. This isn't really how I want to spend my time. I'm really too busy. I wish I could make more time for X. And part of my move home, quite honestly, before breast cancer was in an effort to sort of really operationalize some of that stuff, to sort of extract myself out of the environment that wasn't really fueling me anymore. It, it was draining me. And so, you know, earlier in my career, there's coast to coast flights on a, you know, Monday morning to get to a meeting on time. That was exciting. And as I got older, I'm kind of like, I don't really want to do that anymore. I don't care how much money I make. I don't want to be on a plane. I want to be involved in the place that I live. Mm -hmm. And so my move was in part to get that going, right? To really start to be outside more to, you know, I decided to, to go part-time because I kept my job in New York City. So I didn't need the amount of money I was making where I lived anymore. Um, but I didn't truly step out like that until breast cancer came. And then I, um, quite honestly, I got depressed uh, at the end of my treatment. I got depressed and I took three months off work. I called it my be nice to Lee time. So I like got weekly massages. I um, went to get therapy because I felt like I needed to sort of sort through some things. You know, I felt like I should be getting back to normal, but nothing about my life felt normal. Everything had changed, you know, whether of course. you or not. Yeah. Um, so I think during that time is when I started to realize what it meant to say no, that you can say no and not give a reason. Um, and that having a, lots and lots of friends, which I had is great, but having a lot of 
or having fewer really good friends became more important to me, people that I could really keep in touch with and have meaningful conversations. Um, and my family, quite honestly, too, was a big part of that. So um, I would say that that was the biggest thing, slowing down. And I still struggle with that because that's not my genetic makeup. My genetic makeup is to you know, attack a problem and, and make a change. And mm -hmm. you know, through something like breast cancer, trying to get back to normal is tricky because you really can't change the future. You never know if it's going to come back. That's just a fact with breast cancer. And so I think learning to live with the ambiguity of not knowing, you know, and accepting that, truly accepting that, um, that kind of translates out into other parts of your life where you can, if you really allow yourself to sit in that space, you can apply that to other uncomfortable things that come up, right? Things that happen with your job or relationships or um, other things that make you feel anxious, like you want to make a change or you want a, a resolution immediately. Um, I think I have a better sense of pause around that where I trust mm. that um, in time, things will sort themselves out and I will have a greater sense of peace around whatever it is I'm stressing about. I think that came out of that period of time in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so I powerful. Well. I don't do it well, by the way, but I, I work at it all the time. Well, I mean, I, I think the fact that you were able to identify that as, hey, listen, this is, I, this is something that I know I need to work on. And of course, we're all a work in progress. Nothing's perfect. But to just be able to recognize that and say, I, I need to make a change. Like, this is too much. That's so powerful. Um, and then to be able to kind of leave the city, move to central PA and say, I know I'm doing this for me. And that was even before the diagnosis. So you were already, you know, heading in that direction. And um, I, I also really appreciate that you said at the end of treatment that you were depressed, that you were unsure, you know, because I think oftentimes when people see breast cancer survivors, or they hear from, or just looking at a picture, let's say, right? It's a person smiling or it's, I beat it or, but you don't really get into the background of that. Mm -hmm. I talk about the mental health side all the time because I think it is something that's not discussed as much as it should be. And mm -hmm. you know, not everybody gets depressed, but I do think everybody has down days, um, of course. I mean, when you're struggling with something that's life or death, um, and that happens at different times for different people. For me, I was fight or flight during the treatment. For me, it was like a project, right? I knew I had a plan and I had to do it. And the, the tricky part for me was when I entered into that gray space where I was kind of released from all of that acute care and I had to make sense of my life on a day-to-day -day basis, um, be my own cheerleader, quiet those voices in my head that would raise all those scary thoughts and, and realize that this was going to be forever. You know, like you can't, let this consume you. Um, and, you know, being brave enough to say, I'm, I'm depressed. I wasn't brave enough to say that right away. You know, I went into therapy very hesitantly feeling like, what do you have to be upset about? It was stage one. You got through it. Shouldn't you be happy? Oh, now? that's self-defeating right. language, right? There's someone worse off than you. Right. So therefore you can't feel any sort of uh, emotion around your own. Yeah. Yeah. which of course is not true and very dangerous, by the way. Um, and so, you know, I, I really try to bring that up when I speak to women who are going through it or who have gone through it, who I sense might be struggling with a little bit of that because there's mm -hmm. so much and it's 
different for everybody. If you might be balancing kids, I wasn't, but you might be balancing kids, little ch children, and and trying to mask what you're going through to keep them from being afraid, and so that you're hiding your own emotions for some period of time. Or same thing goes for spouses; that can mm -hmm. have issues. So um, finding a place where you can be truly honest with your own feelings and dealing with that is, um, I think, really important because it, de it delays your ability to heal if you don't find yeah. a way to do that. Yeah, you, you, have to, you have to say to yourself, okay, this is a situation and I need to live with this. What's the best way I can move forward? Yeah, and, and the way you choose to do that, whatever steps you take to make that possible in your life, the biggest thing for me was realizing that other people don't have to get it, right? Like if I yes. make a choice about things that make me able to have good days um, or days that I need to step out for a little bit, I don't have, I shouldn't have to worry or I can't worry if that makes sense to somebody else because I, the only thing I can do is reconcile within myself what makes me the best version of me, the fullest version of me for the people that need me. And that the way I choose to do that is probably not going to be the same as the way someone else chooses to do that. Nor so, should it. Yeah. Nor should it be. Right. So looking for affirmation about those decisions outside of yourself is, is a real challenge. You know, if you're a pleaser or you're, you know, some, sometimes you just got to bone up and do what you have to do. Right. Mm -hmm. You can't always just satisfy your needs, but the times when you have choices to, flake out on a plan that you just don't feel up for or push something that you thought you should do today to tomorrow. Um, those things are okay to do and you don't need someone else to tell you they're okay to do. Right. Right. It comes down to like giving yourself the permission and the grace right. and the ability to, to do what you need. Like you said, to do what you need to do in the moment at that time, that's going to be best for you that's going to allow you to show up fully as the person you need to be right yeah that, that makes total sense ones. i thought it was a great way of putting it is like self-care is not the same as selfish mm. right so making those choices you have to be you know polite honest a good person when you're doing all of those things but taking care of yourself the self-care part of it is not being selfish it's about being in touch with what makes you um the good person that you are. Right. And I think also being able to communicate that to someone, to someone, maybe it's your partner or your spouse or your children or work. I think the way you go about communicating that makes all the difference, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a difference between, listen, right now, maybe you might've felt, you know, I just need to be by myself for a couple of hours. You know, that's what's best for me. But if you don't communicate that properly, or if you just flake out and ghost out on people, like that is not, that, that's how you, you create a lot of friction, right? So what advice would you give to people if they do, do have to make these decisions to do what's best for them? What's the best kind of language? Because I know you're very good at communication and, and all that other stuff. And on that note, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back with Lee's answer. This episode is brought to you by NetHealth, helping you maintain strong relationships with your patients. The Redoc Patient Portal provides a secure line of communication between you and your patients. Conduct virtual visits and have follow-up conversations with your patients via secure messaging when it's convenient for you. 
Patients have 24-7 secure, on-demand access to their therapy health information without phone calls and voice messages. Video conferencing for telehealth, secure messaging, share documents and photos, and view health information and appointments. To learn more, contact them at redoc at nethealth.com. Um, well, I've gotten even better at it with children. So I have two small children. I had kids after breast cancer and I'm a single mom now. And I was since they were very little, good friends with their father and all that. But still, you know, I being, I'm, I'm 50 now, but I was 40 and 42 when I had them. So, you know, the loss of independence around raising two children alone when you're used to like literally flying coast to coast, mm-hmm. like, you know, rewind five years. And it was like the world was at your feet. So I found myself becoming extremely protective of my um, space when they were not with me. And, you know, so I was very cautious about making plans. And I would just be honest about that. If it was a weekend that I didn't have them and somebody invited me to go away, for example, oh, we're having a girls weekend. We're going to go to a winery. Do you want to come? And I would say, well, I might. I might want to come if you need a commitment though. I can't commit because a lot of times when the kids go away, I just like to have some quiet time to myself. I don't like to come back from a weekend and be tired. Um, so I would, I mean, that's just being honest. Uh, you know, yeah. sometimes those are, it's not as easy as something like that, but um, you know, I think with work where there's deadlines and it's a little trickier to push things off. Um, I've gotten better at prioritizing where I'll say, um, my head's not really in it today. I know I said I would have this to you by two o'clock. Is it possible I could have this to you tomorrow by maybe 10? Um, so I'm not telling them all the in, inner workings of what's going on in my brain, but I'm floating the idea that I'd like to shift the priority around because I think it would work better for my mental state. Um, you know, so those are just some ideas for how I do it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. And now what I'd also like to talk about is your book. So you're about to release, well, this will be out the first weekend of October. So the book should hopefully be out by then, right? Yep, it will be. Okay, perfect. So uh, say something big, feel your boobies, find your voice, stories about little lumps inspiring big change. So first of all, congratulations, because writing a book is no joke. Um, so tell us a little bit about what the, why you wrote the book and, and what's in it. Um, so I've wanted to write this book for quite some time. You know, I do a lot of speaking and people often say, oh, your story is so inspiring about how you just created something and then you ran with it and you saved lives and now you have this big foundation. And, um, and I do realize that that's inspirational, but I kind of tired of my own story over time. So every time I would sit down and try to write about it, I was like, oh my gosh. But what I found inspirational enough to get me going this time, and it was really in honor of our 15th anniversary, which was last year. I was hoping to have it done by then. But, and that's you know, the 15th anniversary of the foundation. The foundation. Okay. And, and it was also my, my anniversary from breast cancer is the same as uh, the foundation's anniversary. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I started writing it back then. And the way I got inspired to really get into it was as I started writing about my own story, I was things were coming to mind about these other women that I had met over time through my path as, you know, being very involved in the breast cancer community. And quite honestly, their stories, while different, were very similar. So they were young when they were diagnosed, they found their own lump, and they made some sort of change that was remarkable, that they had really pivoted from 
uh, one path to another and really in an effort to give back. And so as I started seeing that sort of common thread through some other women that I respected, I thought, well, what if I wove their stories into mine? And so, you know, our stories are different. So how I felt it, this part of the journey, you know, when I found the lump, the way I found it is different than the way one of the other women found it and how I felt during chemo is a lot different than the way some other people felt during chemo. So if I can weave their stories in to mine, then it will relate to so many more people because they can kind of say, oh, I really relate to Lee um, when she was deciding if she wanted to have a mastectomy or a lumpectomy. But I really, really relate to Holly during chemo because I'm really struggling with it and she struggled with it too. And so there's lots of tidbits of, of inspiration and um, advice that come out of all of these stories. And so after each chapter, I write a little piece that's called um, Big Lessons from Little Lumps. And it's basically trying to suss out the things that I felt were common um, through each of the women's stories at each stage of the breast cancer journey. Um, and then of course, at the end, you know, they've all sort of found their voice. They've started their own nonprofits or they've uh, started a company to create um, underwear line, lingerie line, that's meant to make you feel sexy, even if you've had your breasts removed. And that was because that particular survivor did not feel sexy after she was diagnosed and had surgery and she was a designer. So she decided to do that. And so um, I just found great inspiration and in listening to their stories and trying to weave them into mine. And, and really at the end of the entire book, what I found were basically three ideas that I saw across all the women that I think can relate to anybody that's going through any sort of um, difficult time, not just breast cancer. And one of them was that I really noticed that each woman found a frame for their situation that really focused on the idea of looking forward into the future mm. versus looking only backwards and only um, wishing they could redo it differently, right? Like being sad about what had happened. They all had those emotions, but the way they ultimately framed things was with the idea of looking forward. Um, then each of them also talked a lot about finding a passion, something that really, you know, gave them those goosebumps or that feeling you get in your stomach when you're doing something right. And that is what they chose to spend their time on. And they really made an effort to strip anything out of their life that got in the way of them being able to focus on that type of activity. Um, and then the thing that we talked about earlier, but the third thing is that they all recognize that change is continuous, right? It's not like you flip a switch and say, I'm going to make this change or I'm going to start feeling your boobies. And all of a sudden I'm happy because I mm -hmm. started a nonprofit and it does good things. I mean, it has all the same challenges that a normal job has. So change is truly this continuous thing, but because of the passion and their focus on the future, they were able to realize that sure, there's going to be some bad dates throughout this process, but nothing is going to get in the way of my path to create this change towards the way I really want to live my life. Um, and I, I found that so powerful when I saw that kind of trend throughout each woman. And I, I really think a lot of people will benefit from watching how each of them kind of, in, you know, injected that into their own lives. Mm, and isn't it amazing um, how storytelling creates such great learning moments, right? I think that's the way to do it. People, they remember the stories. They, I think it's digestible. They internalize it. Like you said, what may, someone may not relate to you, but they may relate to someone else in the book. And it's those stories that weave through that come up with these 
great themes that anyone can relate to. So I just always think that I'm such a huge fan of storytelling and uh, storytelling makes things real and, and uh, relatable. And I think that's an important way. It's one of the things we try to do with the foundation too, is um, when we do provide messaging or things, we try to really make it relatable and that we're telling a story about someone who is real, someone who was young when they were diagnosed. So when mm -hmm. you look at them, you say, that looks like me. I can relate to that. Um, I also think women who are brave enough to share their story, and I by no means think it's wrong to not share your story. I think if you're a private person and that's how you heal, then that's what you should pay attention to. But for those who choose to, and they don't always realize they've chosen to, one of the women in the book said she never talked about it the first time she was diagnosed. She was 26 and she was embarrassed. Um, and then she unfortunately was re-diagnosed nine years later with metastatic cancer at um, 35, which means it's terminal. And at that point, she really became braver to start talking about it. And she realized how much strength she got from sharing her story. And so I think when women put their stories out there, um, they have no idea how many people they touch when they do it. Because no one's going to necessarily walk up to you and say, I really respect that you said that. Or I want you to know that that really made a change in my life that day. But it does. It does. And it goes beyond what you will ever actually know. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that sort of women pushing other women forward and building them up and paying it forward. It's just such a lovely, um, a lovely lesson for, for anyone. But as we all know, you know, the power of women in groups is very powerful. <laughs> Unstoppable. Exactly. That's better. Unstoppable. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so before we kind of wrap things up, what I would love from you is what would you like the audience to sort of take away from maybe from your experience or from our talk today? Because um, I know that you do. And you also, I also want to point out that you also talk to a lot of young people, college students, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. So one of the aspects of our campaign in the past has been what we call our college outreach program, which we provided free materials to college health centers nationally um, through sororities and women's centers and so forth. And that was in an effort to get our message out to the college campuses. And we've also started running a media campaign, um, which we did last year called Are You Doing? It was a minority outreach um, campaign focused on young African-American women in low income areas. Um, African-American women have a, are higher, are diagnosed at an earlier age than white women. Mm -hmm. And once they're diagnosed, they have a higher mortality rate as well. And so it's a very important audience to target. And so we funded a campaign that leveraged billboards, bus shelters, bus wraps, as well as targeted digital outreach um, to that demographic of women specifically to spread the message. And that incorporated five local survivors, real survivors who were diagnosed at a young age. We did a photo shoot shot a video with them and we shared that through all the channels that i mentioned but we got over 6.2 million um impressions with that campaign amazing yeah very amazing so yeah so we reach out to that younger population like you mentioned um in a lot of different ways but i mean i think if you ask me what the one thing is i want someone to take away is that you know it sounds cliche but i really do believe that one voice matters i feel like the ripple effect from one, one person's passion and one, one person's devotion to an idea can really make a difference. And they don't have to be big actions. The things that you choose to do don't have to 
necessarily change the world, but you can start small and the actions that you choose, the words that you choose and how you choose to navigate your life, I think affects other people. Um, and this book really showed me that in the smallest of ways, people can have the biggest impact um, in their communities and in other people's lives. And that's, I think that's a really great lesson for anybody to take away. Absolutely. And now if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Where can they find the book? Um, so the book will be available on Amazon um, starting Perfect. October 1st, I believe. Um, you can read more about the book at leehurst.com, um, which is L-E-I-G-H-H-U-R-S-T.com. Um, you can follow the book on Facebook, which is Say Something Big as well, and Instagram too, Say Something Big. So those are all the channels. And then, of course, if you're interested in Feel Your Boobies and the work that we do. Yes, yes. Uh, the Facebook page is, um, you know, at Feel Your Boobies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And our website is feelyourboobies.com. Awesome. And we'll get all of those links. So for everyone, if you're, you don't have something to take it down or you're not right in front of the computer, we'll have all of the links. You can go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and we'll have a quick link to everything that Lee mentioned today throughout the podcast. So not to worry, everything will be right there. So Lee, thank you so much for sharing your story. I just know, like you said, even if one person hears this and they say, oh, maybe I will feel my boobies. Mission accomplished, right? Mission accomplished, exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Nice to meet you. Yes, you too. And everyone out there listening, thank you so much. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. And a big thank you to Lee for sharing her breast cancer journey with us. And of course, thank you to NetHealth for sponsoring this episode. NetHealth has created the Redoc Patient Portal, which provides a secure line of communication between you and your patients. You can conduct virtual visits and have follow-up conversations with your patients via secure messaging when it's convenient for you. Patients have 24-7 secure on-demand access to their therapy health information without phone calls and voice messages. To learn more, contact them at Redoc, that's R-E-D-O-C, at nethealth.com. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.